The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, he's a poet for the ages, one of the greatest practitioners of English verse this side of Shakespeare, maybe the greatest, excepting the bard. He's actually one of the very few who might even have a case of being as good or better. He's John Milton, author of Paradise Lost, which Dr. Johnson said was a poem which with respect to design may claim the first place, and with respect to performance, the second among the productions of the human mind, end quote. I know what you're thinking. What was first? Well, he was talking. Well, let's save that for the end. Johnson concludes his essay on Milton by noting, quote, his great works were performed under discountenance and in blindness, but difficulties vanished at his touch. He was born for whatever is arduous, end quote. Milton's triumph over blindness is famous, but less well-known are the contours of that discountenance, both personal and political, that Milton faced. Our guest today, Professor Stephen Dobransky, is here to help us understand the turbulence Milton lived through and how the lessons of Milton's perseverance might help us understand him better. That's coming up today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you're here today and that you chose to join us for this stretch of time. Maybe you're multitasking, which I like doing myself, doing dishes or riding that exercise bike, a little bit of culture in your ears, giving you something to think about. Lots of listeners on walks. Well, thank you for bringing me along. And if any of you are listening at night with a speaker pillow, well, you and I are kindred spirits, aren't we? I spend hours listening to podcasts this way. It's not better than sleep, but as I am an insomniac, it's a lot better than staring at the ceiling and thinking about my woes. Speaking of woes, we that, that's W-O-E-S, by the way, not W-H-O-A-S, although I think about those woes too, I guess. <laughs> I'm a big tent woes thinker. Speaking of woes, Milton had woes. He lived a life full of them, one obstacle after another, and he mostly overcame them, at least if we count poetry production as the measure of overcoming, which seems fair enough to me. I knew a few of the basics of his life, his work for Cromwell, and so on, but there was much more for me to learn about, and luckily Stephen Dobransky is a wonderful guide to all things Milton. But before we bring him out, let's do a little Kafka random generating. This is this is often the highlight of my day, people. <laughs> Work has never been more fun. We plug in the numbers 1 through 99. Here we go. We hit our blue, big blue generate button. And the gods of Google point us toward a passage in Reiner Stock's book, Is That Kafka? Which has gathered all of these curious little fragments of Kafka's life for us. This was my Christmas present. I can't remember if a family member bought it for me or if it was one of those I had to buy when I realized that no one had had selected it off my wish list. But either way, it was a Christmas bonus for me, and I'm still enjoying the dividends. 
So to Google we go. One to 99. And we get 38. 38, which lands us in the reading and writing section. And it is called Kafka Proofreads. Okay, as always, you sit back and enjoy the break, and I will desperately read this fragment, and then I will report back. And if it's dull, we'll move on, or I'll quickly find another one that is worthy of our time. Either way, it's win-win for you and me, dear listener. Kafka proofreads, and then Stephen Dobransky on Milton after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. We're skipping over number 38, Kafka Proofreads, because uh, that passage shows how meticulous Kafka was, which is fine and dandy, but not really what we're looking for here. We'll also skip over number 39, one comma too many, which mainly makes the same point. We know Kafka was meticulous and and scrupulous and, and punctilious and all those other words, fastidious when it comes to grammar and punctuation and so on. Instead, we land on number 40, Casualties at a Kafka Reading, which is a very short passage, but explosive. It's one of the best Kafka stories I have ever heard. Let me caveat that, I guess. I love Kafka stories because he was so strange and tormented. I love hearing about his mostly doomed efforts in life, trying to connect with people and how absurd things tended to go for him. He was dominated by his demons. 20th century modernity was like a, a vat of acid he was constantly falling into, sending him swimming for his life while surrounded by people who were, in fact, enjoying their time in the tub, unaware that, that they were not in just plain water. <laughs> a, nice, a nice warm bath. Kafka was the one who, who viewed it as acid. Kafka was the prophet. And it was a nightmare for him to bring us the news. So this story, number 40, Casualties at a Kafka Reading, is one I love because it's an example of what happened 
when Kafka tried to deliver that news to his peers. We are at a reading in 1916. Apparently Rilke is believed to have been in the audience for this. A bunch of writers get up and read their stories, all very pleasant, all very dignified, and then it's Kafka's turn. And here is what happens, according to one of the other writers on the stage who recorded it later. Quote, Something fell with a thud. Confusion in the hall. An unconscious woman was carried out. Meanwhile, the story continued. Two more people were laid low by his words. The rows of listeners began to thin. Some of them fled at the last moment, before the author's vision overcame them. Never have I witnessed a comparable effect from spoken words. End quote. Multiple people in the audience going down, flattened by what they were hearing, and others fleeing. <laughs> Wanting to escape Kafka's fiction as he was reading it aloud. That, dear listeners, is the power of fiction at its finest. It's not easy to pull that off. Kafka apparently did. So, we have another writer who undertook something not easy to do. Write an epic poem while surrounded by fraught personal and political circumstances. Stephen Dobransky will tell us about John Milton and his persistence through troubled, tr- troubled times. Is one of the is one of the troubles not being able to speak very well? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Maybe that'll come up too. Stephen Dobransky will tell us about John Milton and his persistence through troubled times. After this. <laughs> Okay, joining me now is Stephen Dobronsky, Distinguished University Professor at Georgia State University and the editor of the journal Milton Studies. His books include Readers and Authorship in Early Modern England, Milton's Visual Imagination, and a new edition of Paradise Lost. He's here today to talk about his new book, Reading John Milton, How to Persist in Troubled Times, published by Stanford University Press. Professor Dobronsky, welcome to the History of Literature. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. It's a real pleasure and honor. So we've talked before on the podcast about Milton and his reputation as one of the English language's great poets, and yet his relative lack of popularity among general readers today, sort of in the assigned reading category more than the, oh, I've, I'm going to pick up his, his book and read it. And I think your book is serves as sort of a corrective to that. You make the case for Milton as a poet and a prose writer who, in your phrase, is vital and inspiring. So let's talk about his troubled times and how he persisted and how your book presents what we can take from Milton today. We'll start with the troubled times. He lived 1608 to 1674. What was happening exactly in his day? Well, the defining event of the that time period of Milton's life were the British Civil Wars. Mm. And these were a series of conflicts that were fought, simply put, between the king and the parliament. So it was an attempt by the king to claim more power, and in the view of parliament, to claim more power than he ought. Mm. And 
especially the king, wanted to limit religious freedom by enforcing a uniform practice of worship so that all of the individual parishes that had over time developed their own systems of religion, some leaning toward the Episcopal, some leaning toward the Presbyterian, he wanted them to be uniform. And this is one of the things that Milton adamantly opposed. He found himself on the side of Parliament. I like to say that the British Civil War started out as a, for soundbite, started out as a religious conflict that then became political. So mm. it sprung from this controversy over the church. Yeah. But the troubled times are even broader than that. This has appeared with the Great Fire of 1666, when some 436 square mile acres, excuse me, of London were destroyed by a fire that lasted about four days. This was time of frequent influxes of the plague uh, that we can all sympathize as we are, we hope, coming out of a pandemic. This is a time when uh, life expectancy was shorter. This is a time when the British colonial empire is expanding. Mm. And um, so there's a lot of potential for the power of the country, but it's still uh, struggling with that newfound wealth and the conflicts between an aristocracy, a landed aristocracy, and a growing mercantile class. Right. And I guess we should talk about Milton's personal struggles. He had many. Uh, he had many, and most notably, he did go blind. And that's mm -hmm. usually one biographical fact that readers have before they launch into his works. And he loses his sight in 1652. So as you mentioned, he's born in 1608. So he's in his mid-40s when he loses his sight. Yeah. We know that this was a time when there were no schools for the blind. There's no Braille. He relied on amanuenses. He relied in part on his daughters. But we also have anecdotes that survive that he pretty much would ask anybody who came by if they could read for him and help right. him. He had a private secretary he would hire. But that blindness was one of the big hardships of his life. He also had some unhappy marriages. He also suffered from gout that was apparently very painful. And he also then got on the wrong side of the civil wars and found himself briefly imprisoned, fearing for his life, going in hiding. And he had those pressures that resulted sometimes in his books being burnt mm. and removed from the Oxford University Library, for example. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about his involvement in the in the politics of the day. So he was in favor of Oliver Cromwell, the revolutionary military leader turned statesman, and he actually worked for him, I guess. That's right. He worked for the new government as a secretary. I mean, he didn't have a lot of political power in the government. He was primarily a translator. The official title was Secretary for Foreign Tongue. So he would take texts and translate them into English from Dutch or Spanish, and then he would also then translate them into Latin for distribution across Europe. That was his primary role, but he had others. He also worked for a bit as a censor, doing this kind of minor police work for the government, hmm. confiscating papers and going through them, and making sure that a news book that was pro-government was successfully published in a regular way. Hmm. Uh, his role actually put him in quite a bit of danger. He So this is the era uh, King Charles I was executed, which Milton had been in favor of. And then by 1660, when Charles II reclaimed the throne, Milton went to prison, but he also saw the capture and execution of many of his friends. 
And he had kind of put himself in harm's way by writing a tract in, in support of deposing and punishing Charles I, which could have been considered a capital offense. So it's not like he was just a some random person who was surrounded by violence. It sounds like he was right in the crosshairs. Yeah, I think that's well put. And what happens is in 1649, and it's probably when Charles I is on trial during the seven days of Charles I's trial, that Milton writes a tract called The Tenure of Kings and Magistrates, where he really makes his groundbreaking claim that any monarch or magistrate could be deposed, even if not a tyrant, that there's an implicit contract between the people and the leader. And he argues not by that it's the divine right of kings, that it's God's choosing these leaders, choosing these leaders, but instead there's this implicit contract. And if the monarch or magistrate breaks that contract, that person should be out, that the people that wield that kind of power. And it was in publishing that, which we think got the attention of Oliver Cromwell and the replacement government for the monarch, the new executive branch, which was the Council of State, which was ruling along with Parliament, got their attention. And then while he was in their employment, he wrote a few tracks, the Iconoclastes, which was a response to a uh, book allegedly written by Charles I while he was in prison. It was this posthumous publication of his prayers and meditations and a huge, huge uh, success in the country. Mm. The anecdotes are that people would have two books in their parlor, the Bible and then Charles I's Icon Basilica. Uh, and that means the king's image. And then it became known as the king's book. And Milton was asked by Cromwell's replacement government to write a reply, which was iconoclastic, where he went passage by passage through the king's book, offering a rejoinder, trying to show how it was false. He took a very reasoned, very logical approach. So that was followed then by a series of three more tracks that he wrote for the new government. And those are the ones that seem to have gotten him in hot water then as you say, in 1660, when Charles is succeeded by his son, Charles II, who returns triumphantly to England, and the nation reverts to monarchy. Mm. It was less for his secretarial work and more for his being a figurehead. Not really for tenure kings and magistrates. Instead, it was the official tracts that he wrote. And his friends tried to make the case when Milton went to prison only for a month to say, look, he was just a hired hand. This isn't something he really believed. Uh And this was a brilliant strategy in the short term. It helped to get Milton released, it seems, and his fine reduced. We're not entirely sure how Milton got out of prison after only a month, but that's what we can infer. But in the long term, it really damaged Milton's reputation because then people in subsequent decades looked back at him and said, well, look, this guy, at worst, he was writing because he believed in the revolution, and at best, he didn't believe in revolution, and he was still writing in its defense. Hmm. Right. So he's hypocritical. That's yeah. right. Uh, so did he have any fame as a poet when Cromwell was tapping him on the shoulder? Was there a sense of, we're taking one of the best poets of our era, and we've got him on our side? Or was it just that they said, this guy is brilliant, he's a scholar, he, can, he knows all these languages, and he's got the kind of mind that can systematically refute our intellectual opponents? It's absolutely the latter. Mm. Uh, His poetic reputation was really limited at this point. In 1645, he published a collection of poems. 
and there had been a royal entertainment or an aristocratic courtly entertainment, a play that was put on at court in the town near Wales, Ludlow. But that was published without his name. So it's not until after the restoration, and this is one of the remarkable things about Milton, after he loses it, his sight, the revolution, his parents die, his first wife dies, his second wife dies, he loses some children in their infancy. It's only after all of that that he then writes what are considered his masterpieces, Mm. Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, and Samson Agonistes. And his poetic reputation then is primarily posthumous, very quickly um, after he passes. But during his life, his celebrity comes from the tracts he writes defending Cromwell's government Mm. in Latin for international audience. Right. Okay, so let's move to this part because I think it's, it really shows the nevertheless he persisted part of your book. Uh, he was blind, he was uh, in danger, he was in darkness. In his words, he was fallen on evil times, and yet he kept going. He, he doubled down on his ideals of political liberty and religious toleration. He commenced writing his masterpiece, Paradise Lost. So I guess my question is, I'm trying to figure out this religion and religious toleration in Milton's England, and we were so tied in America to the idea of Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of religion, but they had a state religion, and you mentioned that Charles I had tried to command a uniform worship. Why, why was he so intent on that? Was it because he viewed alternative forms of worship as subversive and a challenge to his authority as the head of the state and the the church? Yes, that seems to be the case. The monarch at that time was the head of the Church of England, as well as the nation. And so the diversity of religious practices meant the uh, king was exerting less control. It also seems to have come from, trying to be fair-minded, a sincere religious enthusiasm on Charles the First part where he and his, there was no prime minister, that was not an office yet in the 17th century, but the kind of effective prime minister of the time, who was Archbishop William Law, the most powerful cleric, that they believed in the beauty of holiness, a phrase that comes from the Psalms, and that by having more decorative architecture in the church, having more ceremony as part of the uh, weekly service, that that beauty would inspire holiness and improve mm. virtue. And others, now then from Milton's position, that was moving the church too close to Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And so he saw it a perversion of the clarity of your conscience and the Bible and a personal relationship with God. Mm-hmm. So it seems as if Charles saw it as, going back to your question, as an affront to his authority, but also this was born out of what appears to be a sincere religious belief about the best way to worship. And when initially in Scotland, uh, they resisted his edicts to empower, he tried to enforce this uniform practice of worship by empowering the bishops. And each bishop had power over a group of churches. And when these bishops' authority were defied in Scotland, he then saw it as a political blow to his reign that, okay, I've got to tamp this down because people are outright defying me and not following through with the kind of practice that I think is the right one. 
Now, we today might say that someone who is truly religiously tolerant would be accepting of all religions, including Judaism and Buddhism and, and so on. And was was Milton going that far, or was he just saying, don't tell us how to worship, we're doing it our own way, and you shouldn't be so heavy-handed in, in demanding that our service looks this way. But was he, I mean, did it not come to the point where he was sort of saying, everyone who lives in this country should be free to to be whatever they whatever type of religion they want to be. Right. His, and this is one of the reasons why I think Milton suffers in our contemporary view that his, at his time, his radical views look conservative by our standards. Right. He's he's for religious toleration, but of course he means Christianity. His sense of religious tolerations is you can have heterodox views of Christianity. He argues that people should have the right to divorce. And we in the 21st century have moved far beyond knowing that that idea of divorce is widely accepted in, in many churches and, and outside of churches in the 21st century. He also argues for a more representative form of government. We don't want a king. He becomes an opponent to monarchy. But he doesn't go so far as to say he's for democracy. So again, his heterodox and, and radical views of the time are not that radical uh, by today's standard. Having said that, I will note that he was deeply engaged with the Hebrew scriptures and took them very seriously, and they seem to have influenced his philosophy and belief system. But I don't want to overstate the case and represent him as a 21st century guy. Right. Okay. So... Do you think then when he was writing Paradise Lost that he viewed that as as an escape from politics or a desire to affect minds through art rather than argument? Or did he view it as politics by other means? Yeah, that's an interesting question because it is striking that on the, he does continue to write uh, after the Restoration, after the his dreams of a more representative government are crushed with Charles II coming back, and that while he continues to write, that he turns more often to poetry than prose. So he might have thought it was a more subtle way of communicating. He might have thought there was more opportunity for nuance. But what you do see in Paradise Lost is a poem that begins fundamentally with a story about a rebellion, Mm. with a story to try to overthrow political power. In the case of Paradise Lost, it's Satan challenging God. So he clearly still had the British Civil War is on his mind. And he was, he, it, it, this is something he'd been planning for many years. We can go back and look at his early poems and early writings and hear him contemplating me and a- aspiring to one day write something great. So this isn't something that only came out of his experience with the British Civil Wars, but he does seem after the revolution fails, after the wars fail, to more often turn to poetry. Not exclusively. One of his last treatises is about religious toleration. And um, it's published uh, very near the end of his life. But more often he went to poetry. In those tracks, in those works, we can find his political convictions. And not surprisingly, given that he kept going back to the Bible and Hebrew scriptures, his religious beliefs, too. We today might have more of a view of of poetry as being something outside of politics. And you you give this uh, wonderful anecdote that I hadn't heard before where he was attempting to get out of a jam and he wrote a poem. And 
why don't you tell that story? This is when, right at the beginning of the British Civil Wars, where there was a, a hope that maybe this could be a short war. And Charles I, who liked to lead the troops in person, had led his forces outside of London, and the parliamentary forces had tried to go and meet him there. And in doing so, they delayed just long enough and miscalculated which way Charles's first troops were going to travel, that Charles then led his men back to London. And now that city, which was a stronghold for Parliament support, those are the two sides of the British Civil Wars, the king versus the parliamentary side, the parliamentary forces had left the city unguarded. And so as Charles is approaching the city, there are all of these laws being passed to allow the shops to close so that everyone can work on building defenses, trying to build walls, construct ramparts. They move the cannon uh, ammunition across the city. They put up these guards around these various posts to look for spies. And everybody is taking these extremely practical measures. We have anecdotes of women, children, and men are working round the clock to protect the city as the king's forces are, are planning an attack. And Milton writes a poem, and he posts it on the door of his house. And it's a sonnet. He addresses captain or, or captain or colonel or colonel or knight in arms. It's his kind of uh, scattershot first line. I don't know what kind of military leader is going to attack my house, but whoever you are, please preserve it. Um, and, you know, he says, if you if you spare my house, I'll make you famous. I will share your name wherever the sun's bright rays hit. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing there a little haphazardly. But it's a really audacious claim. One, because he's still, going back to your earlier question, a poetic nobody. And two, it's remarkable because it's his belief in the power of words. It might be that this poem is poised between the serious and the smiling. He might have meant it with some humor, but also some seriousness. Yeah. But he's proposing that he can maybe dissuade someone from attacking his house. And then three, he's writing in English. And at this time... People didn't speak English, even in what we today call the United Kingdom. There was Welsh and there was Irish Gaelic and Scottish Gaelic. There was Cornish. So to propose that he's going to make this person famous and that he could maybe protect his home in English is a remarkable claim for the English tongue as well. Yeah, it's just wonderful. I I would love to see a, a film or something that would treat that and, and show what the soldier who encountered that note did, if they would be sort of puzzled by it or if they would maybe nod and, and think, OK, well, maybe this is one. This is a house I should skip. Well, what's remarkable is or the punchline is the king's forces stopped. They never made it to London. The, the parliamentary forces raced back and were able to get there before the king's forces. And then the king's nephew, Prince Rupert, persuaded him, uh, was persuaded, I should say, by his uncle not to continue to the city. And they went back to Oxford, where the alternative government had been set up during the British Civil Wars. And so there never was an attack. But I, I do wonder what other Londoners thought who might have seen this posted on Milton's door. You know, he had opened a school at this point. He was a school teacher by trade. And so... Uh, was this in part for his students to inspire them? But what did his neighbors think? What did other people think about this strange writer of verse and teacher 
of Latin who would post a poem on his door instead of picking up a shovel to help dig some trenches or build some ramparts. Right. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with more about, especially I want to ask you about your book, Reading John Milton, How to Persist in Troubled Times. Okay, we're back with Professor Stephen Dobronsky. So biographers often will take a chronological approach or they'll they'll go poem by poem and kind of organize things that way. How did you organize your book? I decided to try a different take. There have been some excellent biographies of Milton written in the past. They have been targeted largely to an academic audience, mm. exclusively academic. And so I thought it might be useful to highlight some of what I call some fundamental human concerns. So it's a thematically organized book. Um, I begin talking about Milton's commitment to the power of language, as we were talking about before the break, but then also talking about how he coped with loss by mm. turning to words and how he strived to combat what he perceived as injustice by turning to words, how he coped with physical suffering how he was an early advocate of free speech. And this is obviously perhaps before the U.S. Constitution and his writings seem to have influenced our writers as they were framing the idea of free speech. But then also how he coped with his own arrogance mm. or his uh, lack of humility and the value of forgiveness or the risks of temptation and doubt and and then coping with disaster, whether it be the plague, whether it be a military defeat, or whether it be um, the Great Fire of London. Mm. I found the the way you've set up the book to make it very readable and to really put us inside of Milton's mind, so to speak, when he was facing these things and to be able to kind of travel along with him. And they almost read like 10 stories. And I was wondering if you could just choose a chapter maybe and kind of walk us through it so the listeners can get a sense of your particular approach toward that fundamental human concern and how you're able to address the issues you wanted to address, what you were able to draw upon and so on. I'd be pleased to. And I, I like your description of it as 10 stories because I think that the book also allows for selective reading, that you can read these out of order because it's not adhering too closely to a straightforward narrative evolution of the character. Although by the time I get to the final chapters, I do focus on his final days. But for example, in direct answer to your question, the chapter on free speech mm. looks at how Milton was called before parliament because when he was working for the government, a book he approved was considered heretical. And mm -hmm. so one of the books that he, in his role as a secretary for the government, said, yeah, we can publish this, was a Polish book that uh, challenged the Trinity, challenged ideas about Christ that were thought to be standard thinking, and that was seen as highly controversial. So I begin by talking about that, and then I use that to talk more generally about the punishment for breaking the law at the time. The strict censorship 
rules that existed and people who were punished, whether it's with being branded, having their ears cut off, put in the pillory. And then the, I turned to Milton's own hardships with censorship, where some of his writings were called out, as I mentioned earlier, either by being set on fire, being removed from the library, or being banned. And then I turned to Milton's treatise, Arguing for Free Speech, Areopagitica. And this is really the heart of the chapter, how in this tract, he calls it Areopagitica, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's named after the Areopagus, and that is the Hill of Mars, Pegus Hill and Ares or Mars, the god of war, and this place where there was a court in ancient times, and he's evoking that court and saying to the parliament, you should emulate them in being more fair-minded and for allowing books to be published. And once again, this is an example of Milton's radicalism of it at the time, but more traditional in according to our standard, because he's not arguing for everything to be published in arguing for free speech. He has some limitations he's willing to accept. Um, he doesn't want anything that would be against freedom of expression. So he doesn't want Catholics to be published freely in England because he sees that as unlawing the law, as undoing it. If you allow someone to publish their words to say that we should limit free expression, he says they should not be allowed to express themselves freely. Mm. And then I conclude that discussion by looking more fully at Milton's heterodox treatise. Um, at his later years, he wrote a long and never finished treatise articulating all of his religious beliefs. And it's a really quite remarkable document. It wasn't discovered until the 19th century, until the 1800s, when somebody was working in the public records office in England. And as they're going through the uh, various cabinets, they came across this bundle of papers tied with a cord. And in it was John Milton's Christian doctrine, mm. uh, De Doctrina Christiana, or On Christian Doctrine. And this remarkable treatise has him spelling out views that he could not have published openly in treatise form during his time if he expected to live. People were still being set on fire for advocating some of the heretical ideas that he espouses in this tract. So that, that gives you an example of how one of the chapter unfolds yeah. thematically. Do you know why he wrote that? Was it Did he need to get it down on paper in order to kind of you know, make sure he was outlining all the the contours of his thought and, and wanted to systematize it? Or did he hope to publish it one day? Or do we know why he was, what form it was taking and why he was putting it down and taking that risk? Well, systematize is a great word that you use because this is a systematic theology, which works through step by step. He has a chapter on the Holy Spirit. He has this, a chapter on the Son of God. He has a chapter on predestination, a chapter on marriage, and so on. He calls it in the preface his dearest and best possession. And that gives you a sense of how seriously he took it mm. and the kind of impetus he felt to write this down. We don't think he expected to publish it in his time because it would have been so highly controversial. If he did publish it, he would have had to do it without his name and expect it to be suppressed. And it seems like he worked on this over time because it's in various hands, various amanuenses or secretaries were recording it for him. But also important for Milton was, and this is an idea that comes out very fully in Areopagitica, 
was this belief in that the search for truth is collaborative. And so he says also in the treatise that these are the best answers I have by working through the Bible systematically. Mm. Don't believe me. You figure it out for yourself. And then to get, you know, then I will look at your treatise. He, he doesn't say that last part explicitly, but that's the presumption there that he's not trying to convince anyone of these ideas. He's trying to lay it out with the hope that other people will be inspired to do the same. Did he have his own soul on the line here? Did he did he view it as uh, I mean, he he was a sincere believer. Was he looking at it as. I need to do what my conscience and, and my religious feelings tell me to do in order to be a good Christian and, and go to heaven and avoid hell and so on. Was he, did he have that kind of uh, an impetus toward continuing to write even in the face of all of this potential danger? I think he did. The way I might phrase it is it was a matter of conscience. Mm. He understood conscience as God speaking to each person. And so he saw it as a responsibility that he had as someone who almost had the Bible by heart, that he should articulate these beliefs that he thought were true. What's striking about Milton is one of the things is that he has less to say about heaven and hell and about the fate of the soul after death and seems to, especially in Paradise Lost, emphasize what to do now on earth. Mm. here today. And that's another way in which I think he resonates in our times. Um, when I teach Milton, students who don't share his religious beliefs or even are not even close to having a Christian background, find him intellectually and philosophically engaging because of the issues he's trying to deal with and his kind of open-mindedness toward everyone searching for the truth, everyone trying to make the most of our time here and both the em emphasis on individual responsibility and then an implicit social contract that subsequent writers have effectively expanded to be more inclusive. Right. And so is it fair to say that when you call him inspiring and you talk about his persistence in the face of terrible times and, and troubled times, is that what you're getting at, that even though today we might not be wrestling with the same doctrinal questions. Our political struggles might not have the same groups and so on. It's hard to kind of lift lessons from his particular positions, but we can lift lessons from his commitment to values and the way he approached thinking through these problems and his belief in, I guess, rationality and, and logic and sort of his passionate commitment to a search for the truth. I think that's very well put. And the way I would also add to it is he saw it as the right and the responsibility mm. of each person to think for themselves. Mm -hmm. And that idea of the right, I think we might all rush to embrace and say, of course, I have the right to choose this. But the idea of the responsibility, we might then take a step back or have our eyebrows go up for a second. Wait, I have to do all this hard work for myself. One of the things that Milton battled against was custom, was tradition of doing things because that's the way we've always done them. And so he's iconoclastic in that way of saying, wait, just because we've always said divorce was illegal or only allowable in cases of adultery. No, 
that's not necessarily the right way to go forward. And so he's willing to shake things up, to shake the snow globe, so to speak, mm. to be try things a different way. And I think your word reason or intellect is really valuable because he saw religion as both very spiritual, but also not para or irrational. It was also very much required us to use our gifts as people and to think through these ideas and yeah. not just go with, that's what my parents said, that's what the king said, that's what the church leaders say, let's figure it out for ourselves. Yeah. Or we have this this issue in our political discourse where the media is often faulted for praising moderates just for the sake of being moderates. And so anybody who comes in and says they're going to split the difference is somebody who's viewed as kind of a hero. And it, it seems, you know, which is which is fine, except if both sides are wrong and are <laughs> off on the wrong track, splitting the difference might still be wrong. And it seems like what Milton is a good example of is, well, think through what your underlying values are. And so you may need to be outside of that middle if if both of the you know the the right and the left or whatever the the right nomenclature is for the politics of your day they might uh the the factions i guess i should say if they're both being intolerant for example then being in the middle of them and trying to divide their difference and and come out in the middle might actually mean you're being intolerant as well I think that's right. And I think one of the things that's really striking is Milton himself was a hyper-partisan. You know, he firmly believed that monarchy was bad, that people should think for themselves, that we needed, that they needed a more representative government. But at the end of his life, after his ideals are crushed and the king uh, is reinstituted and the people line the streets and there's a parade through London by one count was 20,000 people long as it's zigzagging through the streets and Charles II is returned to the throne on his birthday. It's his wonderful political victory. Late in life, Milton is writing something like Samson Agonisti, hmm. where he takes the story of Samson and here's a, a person who was supposed to free his people and he's in prison and his hair is cut and he is completely demoralized and defeated and he's thinking, my parents were told twice by an angel that I was going to be the deliverer of my people and I failed. And here's Milton, I think, resting with, what if I was wrong? Mm -hmm. What if all of the certitude I had in arguing for a more representative government was a mistake and God wasn't on our side? And so he's willing to entertain publicly as so much as it's in print his own uncertainty or in Paradise Lost, where he has this grand ambition and is a very proud writer. And then who does he put in the center of Paradise Lost, but a character who's undone by his hubris, mm. which is Satan. Yeah, right. You've been writing about Milton for a long time. Did this book, did it change your opinion of him? Do you find yourself sort of rolling your eyes at things he does and, and says, or are you endlessly fascinated? Or what's your relationship with Milton before and after writing this latest biography? I think I have come to both admire aspects of him more and also be more willing to criticize him for some of his short-sightedness or shortcomings. Mm. 
mm-hmm. that when you are required to confront a r- subject in all of their life and also as your own culture is changing, as we in the 21st century have gone through a pandemic, are going through an ongoing racial reckoning, to be able to, to go through the Me Too movement and to still be going through that, as a writer, I think it's valuable to look at these subjects through those lenses as well. And so it's, it's endlessly fascinating, still in great admiration, but also more acutely aware of the difficulties that are sometimes wrapped up in some of his assumptions and in some of his blinkered perspectives. Mm. Okay. The book is called Reading John Milton, How to Persist in Troubled Times. Stephen Dobronsky, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. And that will do it for this episode of the History of Literature. John Milton, a great poet, and it's as fun to read about him as it is to read him. Even Dr. Johnson, who thought him second only... I promised you this, didn't I? Did you think I forgot? He thought him second only to Homer. Even Dr. Johnson, who revered Milton's works, acknowledged that no one ever wished it longer than it was. Not exactly a pleasure read. But reading about John Milton... That is a delight. And you can start with Professor Drobronsky's book, which will give you all the window into Milton you need to get going. Speaking of getting going, it's nearly time for us to get going and to say our goodbyes, dear listeners. We'll have some lives of early black Americans soon, their lives and their reading. And Catullus, why not? He's a good cranky dude. This is that cranky stretch of the calendar for me. February and March and April are not such great months with my beloved October so far away and the weather so full of blahs. Woes and blahs. Woes of both types. Woes, woes, and blahs. That's where we are. So let's wipe those away with some great books, some great guests, and some great conversations. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.